0: Good morning. I have a question for you. Are you content? Say, Pastor Phil, that's a trick spiritual question. (laughs) Are you content? Be content with such things as you have, right? But press on towards the mark, right? So there's certain things I should be content about, and other things that maybe I shouldn't be content about in the right way. Does that make sense? Another way to, to put this is, do you have enough? Enough of what? <laughs> well, it depends. Sometimes we say, I've had enough, right? I've had enough. We've had enough of certain things. Maybe uh, politics or sometimes I've had enough of that. Uh, <laughs> amen. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> I've had enough, sometimes after a good meal, right? The, the hostess asks if you want more, if you want more cake. You go out to eat at a restaurant, and they say, do you want dessert? And you say, no, I've had enough, right? And what does that signify? That signifies contentment, right? I've eaten, I'll fast for at least four more hours before eating again. <laughs> I've had enough. Having enough, there's certain things that we could say I've had enough of, but when it comes down to it, there's something in our hearts that says I need more, right? The human nature, I need more, I need more. You know, remember growing up and mom, she's the one that gets to cut the pie into your portion, your slice. And as a teenage boy, that portion is always too small, right? Now, going to grandma's house, granny's house, you can eat as much pie as you want, right? As long as grandpa doesn't get to it first. The portion is bigger. That idea of portion, what is a portion? It's it's an allotment. It's an amount, a set amount, right? That someone else often determines. I remember also growing up that uh, there was eight of us kids in the family, three boys, And my dad would sit at one end of the table and my mom at the other. My dad was at the lower end of the table, so if any cups spilled, he had an exit strategy. (laughs) And we all had our places around that table. My brother got the middle of my dad's left-hand side because right there was where the chimney was, and we heated with wood, and there was no insulation in our house. So that was a coveted spot. But that's where he got because he was the oldest, right? The warm spot. My younger brother always usually sat right to the left of my dad. And when he hit to be a teenager, do you know where the pot of noodles started? (laughs) It did not start with my younger brother. And why is that? Because his portion would have been too great to handle the needs of the rest of the family. He got the pot last and was always told, don't take the rest, right? I'm sure I was there at some stage too because he wanted a very large portion. He was growing, growing boy, the last two weeks, not last week, but the two weeks before, we've looked at two ideas of our Lord being our, and then we fill in the blank. The Lord is my shepherd, we looked at three weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we looked at the Lord is our rock. And today, I want to look at this idea as we look at a few passages of scripture. The idea is the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. He is the allotment that I need. So what does it mean, then, that the Lord is my portion? It really, comes down to this question, is God enough? Is God enough to meet the needs in my life? And you might say, well, Pastor Phil, that's kind of a silly question. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, present everywhere. I-, I know he's actually more than enough, right? He can meet all of my needs. He can do all of that. But as we'll see, it's, it's not so much of who God is. It's actually more of who you believe God to be. In other words, are you going to take him at his word and say, God is my portion. God is enough. So that's the idea that we'll be looking at. We'll be starting in Psalm 16. Psalm 16. There's some familiar passages, some familiar verses here, ones of comfort and hope and encouragement. What we'll be doing is looking at four separate passages with this word or idea of portion in it, and then we'll be looking at another passage with, or two more passages after that with illustrations, actually two separate ladies, illustrating this idea that God is enough in their lives okay so we're looking at four passages this idea of portion and then two illustrations two ladies actually in the scriptures that will show in in their specific instance that God was their portion God is enough so we'll begin here in Psalm 16. Psalm 16 what is this idea of of portion well I've already hinted or alluded to it it's an allotment and cl- tied closely to this idea would be the word inheritance, and it's, it's those that word specifically inheritance is used specifically of the twelve tribes of Israel. They had an allotment, an inheritance, when they went into the land of Canaan. And in Deuteronomy ten verse nine, it it or actually it's it's later on in there, it shows that when Joshua went into the land, what did he do with the twelve tribes? He actually allotted their inheritance, their land. He said, this portion goes to this people, and this portion goes to this tribe, and this portion goes to this tribe, and they divided it up, kind of like we would do states, if you want to think of it that way, into different portions or allotments. And that's the idea then behind this inheritance. It's a part of a land. One of the other ideas is just that part, part of something, something that's weighed out and divided out like a, a family would do with inheritance money, right? How does inheritance usually work? Well, my family just went through this with the passing of my grandfather. There's a lot of land there, there's money there, and, and there's five children in the family. And so there's five allotments. It's divided into five equal parts based on land value or how much cash, and then it's given to each of the children as an allotment, an inheritance, And with that, you don't get to decide your size, right? Unless you do something very sneaky or unethical, right? (laughs) The allotment and the portion is set. And so the land that God promised to the tribes of Israel, that Moses declared, that Joshua divided up, went to the 12 tribes. But there was one group that didn't get any land. What? That's not fair, right? What group was that? That was the Levites the priests, the ones who would serve before the Lord. And that's a passage of Deuteronomy 10, 9. It says, Wherefore Levi hath no part nor inheritance with his brethren. So there's, he doesn't get inheritance like everyone else. Instead, the Lord is his inheritance, according as the Lord thy God promised him. So what portion did Levi get, the Levites get? They got God. <laughs> They got God as their portion. Now, of course, they had cities to dwell in. They had pasture lands outside of those for their animals. But their dependence, their focus was on the service of God and to be in and among the people. So, when we come to this idea of portion, we're asking the question is God enough? Is God my portion? Am I trusting, depending on Him? And we're going to look at four passages now. We're going to look at times of delight. That's what this passage here. Times of discur- discontentment. So, times of delight times of discontentment, times of distress, and times of darkness. In those four times, can you say, God is my portion? That's what we're looking at. Okay, so Psalm 16, you see at the top that it's a psalm of David. David the king, the man that God knew after his own heart. He desired to do what God wanted him to do. And yet, David looked around and he compared himself in this psalm to those around him, the enemies that, that would go against God. Notice in verse 1 of Psalm 16, it says, Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. Here's this first idea of faith that we'll see over and over again. I'm going to put my trust in God. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, thou art my Lord. My goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent in whom all is my delight. So where is David finding his hope and his confidence and his delight? He's finding it in God and in the people of God, in God's place. Their sorrow shall be multiplied that have hasten after other gods. So he's comparing God's people to those that worship false gods after other gods. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer nor take up their names into my lips. So he's making this contrast between God's people, those who are depending on him and all those that are worshiping idols, giving sacrifices to idols. And he says, I'm not gonna act like them. I'm not even gonna name them or put their names in my lips because that's not where my trust, my confidence is in. Instead, verse 5, we see the first mention of this word. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. What is he saying? That I find my delight, my contentment, my lot in life even, the way the dice is rolled. It's not random. It's actually in God's hands. It's in God's control. And mine inheritance is in the Lord himself. In other words, I don't need a lot of money to make me happy. I don't need a lot of of false friends to make me happy. My delight is actually in the Lord and what he has done for me. And that's why he can go on to say in verse 6, look at it with me, the lines are fallen to me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. In other words, where God has put me, where he's drawn the lines, the place that I am in life, I can rejoice in and be happy in because of who my God is. And so, he goes on to praise the Lord. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my glory rejoiceth. My flesh shall also rest in hope. Does your body ever get weak or tired or give out on you? Like my ankle? But yet my flesh, my very body, I can rest in hope. I'm looking forward to something, trust, faith, in what God has said. And he goes even to this extreme, like why can I be confident in God? Verse 10, for thou will not leave my soul in hell or the grave Neither will thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. He's looking forward to actually being with God. He's saying, God is my portion here now, and the hope that I have and the delight I have is that God is my portion forever. So, times of delight, this outlook on life really sets us up for God being our portion that I can be content with my allotment that God has given me because it's from his gracious hand and he's a good God and he gives me strength. Well, what about in times of discontentment? In other words, have you had enough? And you say, no, I haven't had enough, I want more. (laughs) Or are there there times in your life or even now that you say, no, I'm actually discontent in a certain area. In other words, it often goes like this. Our thoughts are uh, if only, right, if only, or I wish, I wish this was different, or I wish I would have done something differently, or if only, you know, I had this much money in my bank account. Well, thankfully, the government's doing that for you now, right, okay? (laughs) Or if only, if only. So what do we do in times of discontentment? We'll turn over to Psalm 73, a few pages over, Psalm 73, And we're actually looking at a psalm of Asaph here, so not David, but Asaph. And he's wrestling with this thought of, of why, why do the wicked seem to prosper? <laughs> why do the bad guys seem to win? We love a good movie or a good story, right, where the bad guys, they look like they're going to win, but they're defeated in the end, right? That's what makes what we think a good storyline. And here Asaph is saying, it doesn't look like that's the outcome. And, and he, he says there in verse 3 of Psalm 73, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The wicked have everything they need. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. In other words, they don't, they don't have to deal with all the issues. You almost catch here a tinge of jealousy, right? Or envy if only, if only I had what the wicked have in the sense of they don't have all the troubles I have. They have the riches. They get away with things. If only. But what does he do in this time of discontentment? Well, he cries out, you see, to God, Look down at verse 14. For all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. When I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. So he's having this turmoil conflict with why are the wicked getting ahead in life? So what did he do? I went to the sanctuary of God. I had communication with God. I, I sought God him specifically and what happened well he had a change of of heart of mind in the midst of this discontentment look down at verse 24 where he's talking to God here thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterwards receive me to glory God I'm going to listen to your instruction because I know that you're going to take me home to be with you that's the, the basic idea And so, even though I'm discontent and the wicked are prospering around me, he realizes that's where I'm not supposed to place my faith, my trust, my source of hope in. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but thee? In other words, what am I going to look to for contentment when I'm discontented? I'm going to look upwards. And there's none upon earth that I desire besides thee. So I can look up to heaven, none of the false gods. What about here on earth? No, there's nothing that compares or that I even desire besides God. 20, verse 26, my flesh and my heart faileth. Have you ever been there? And maybe it's a physical thing, but the physical effects are mental very much, does it not? If you can't move, you have certain thoughts about yourself and your body that usually are not the most encouraging, Right? Or it could be um, when, he, when he says, my flesh and my heart faileth." What, what causes your heart to fail? A lot of times it's relationships too, right? Things don't go always as planned. I, I desire this, if only this, for my children, for my, my spouse, my significant other, my friend. But yet, people have failed me. And it caused my heart to sense that failure and to feel that, Right? So there's many things that can come into our lives that that cause us this stress, this strain. So what does the psalmist say? The last part of verse 26 is very instructive for us. But God is the strength of my heart. God is the strength of my heart and my portion, my allotment forever. I thought I was going to find satisfaction or comfort in this person. I thought that allotment was going to bring me hope. And God uses people in our lives, right, to encourage and to point us to him? Absolutely. But do people fail? Do I fail? Yes. But God never fails. God never is weak. God never is someone we go to and He says, no, I don't have the strength to do that. His allotment for us The portion is in him and who he is. And notice in both of these passages that we looked at at so far, my portion is in God himself. It's not that my portion is in the things God does for me, or my portion is in what God has provided for me. No, you take all of those things away, God is still my portion. Remind you of anyone? Everything taken away? God still is portion. Remember Job? Yeah, that's who comes to mind. He got a lot of bad knocks on his door in one week. And yet, in the end, he came around and said, no, I'm not going to ask the why, I'm going to focus on the who. The who of who God is. Because he is my strength and my portion. And notice how Asaph ends this psalm then, verse 27 and 28. For lo, they, are, they that are far from thee shall perish Thou hast destroyed all them that go whoring from thee, but it's good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. So he starts out with this discouragement. Bad people are seem to get away with it, but he realizes, no, God's my strength. God is my portion. In the end, God's gonna take care of it all. He's gonna, he's gonna deal with the wicked So right now, what is it good for us to do? If God is going to be my portion, I'm going to draw near, and I'm going to trust him. Times of discontentment. Psalm 142. Psalm 142. What about times of distress? In my mind, this steps it up a notch. It's not that you're just looking out and saying, those people over there are doing bad things. Times of distress, we're seeing that David is writing this psalm when he's hiding in a cave. Why would David be hiding in a cave? Because there's big, hairy, smelly, sweaty men with swords and spears hot on his trail, right? There are people that are actually after his very life. And so Psalm 142 is actually written from a time of distress in David's life where he's crying out and calling out. So you see refuge in the Lord is the heading here. But notice how it starts, Psalm 142, 142, verse 1, where it says, I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplications. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. So there's a good sign here. Here's David. Here's trouble. They're on the same spot, right? David and trouble have met. They're face to face right here. So what do you do? What do you do when you and trouble meet? What's our first response? Notice David's is to cry out to the Lord. It's not to ignore the trouble. It's not to say the trouble or the distressing situation isn't a big deal. It's not to say, oh, I can handle that. It's not to text all my friends. It's not to post on Instagram. It's not even to start a GoFundMe. No, his first response is I cried out to the Lord, and I poured out my complaint to him. I told God about it. I talked with God. Verse 3, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, have you ever been there? Spirit completely overwhelmed. Then thou, God, knowest, knewest my path. And the way wherein I walked, they have privily laid a snare for me. So I'm overwhelmed, trouble is right here, knocking at the door, the path is set before me, and it's the path that God has laid out. You notice that thou knowest my path, but what's in the path? There's a snare that some bad guy has set up there, and yet God is leading me down this path. So verse 4, I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me, Refuge refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. David realized there's no one else coming to help. There's no reinforcements in this time. So again, verse 5, Again, I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion. Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. This psalm ends right there. Where is David? He's still in the cave. You notice you don't get resolution in this one. But what is David clinging to? What is David doing He says, I'm going to trust the Lord. Everyone else failed me. People have set up snares for me. Everyone else actually abandoned me. I can't even trust in them. There's no refuge. There's no place to hide. So I'm going to stay in this cave and I'm going to depend upon you, God, because you're my refuge. You're my source. You are my portion. God, you're enough. I'm going to depend upon you. So we've looked at times of delight. Times of discontentment, times of distress, and then the last one is times of darkness. And it's an appropriate book, but to me this is even heavier in some ways. We would use terms maybe today as such as depression. I know there's a lot of uh, maybe even baggage with that word, but it's still very real. I would use the word despair or darkness. 'Cause that's how the psalmist often puts puts it forth. I'm in I'm in complete despair, my own soul, I can't even look above me. And who experienced that? Well, there's many in scriptures, but the one I want to look at that that shows this is in Lamentations. Lamentations chapter three. Lamentations three. What's going on here? Why is Lamentations written? Well, it's a lament, which is someone going through something that is very hard. And it's written by Jeremiah. Who's Jeremiah? Well, he's a prophet. He's a prophet that was actually got to see Jerusalem. Yay, right? But what did he see about Jerusalem? He saw the Babylonian army come in and take over So here Jerusalem is, the holy city, the, the city that all the Jews look to, say, "This is where God's temple is. this is where we meet with God. This has everything going for us." And then God's very enemies come in and just destroy everything, take people, capture them. And so this lament of Jeremiah is really crying out to God, and it's, it's very introspective. It's so very poetic in a way of saying there's this turmoil within me, and and I I just feel spent. And you notice in chapter 3, just these first couple verses, how he describes himself. So Lamentations 3 verse 1, I am the man that hath seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. What is he saying? I've experienced God's judgment because of all the sin that's happened. I'm actually experiencing God's judgment. Verse 2, He hath led me and brought me into darkness, but not into light. Where is Jeremiah? He's in a dark place. (laughs) And he's not talking physically here, he's talking his own internal emotions. He's going through a dark time. And we still use those same phrases today I'm going through a dark time right now. I'm struggling with my thoughts, I'm, I'm struggling with how to go forward. So what does Jeremiah do in dark times? He knows God's afflicting wrath is upon him. He he knows God has led him to really this dark place. So he sees God's hand in all of this, but yet it's not an easy place. We actually go to verse 23. I know we're skipping over a lot, but we're going to go to verse 23. Verse 22, I mean, I'm sorry. Very familiar verses here. Here's what he does in a dark time. Verse 22, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. Remember when he's saying this, he's saying this as Jerusalem is falling, as people are being slaughtered before him. And he's still able to say, God, it's your mercy in all of this. And you still have compassion. Verse 23, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. We've already looked at this idea of trust in God several times. And here the idea of God being faithful comes up. God is always faithful, so he can always be trusted. Then the very next verse, verse 24, "...the Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him." The soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Here's what Jeremiah is doing He's saying, God, everything else around me is destroyed. I'm in a really dark time. God, you're my portion. You're my hope. I'm going to wait on you because I know your mercy, your compassion, And your faithfulness are always the same. And it's beautiful how he puts it. It's good that we should wait and hope for the salvation of the Lord. Now, some people, this doesn't come really in the full sense, actually for all of us as believers, until eternity, right? There's still things and problems we're going to have to deal with. In other words, God doesn't always answer the prayer of, free me from cancer, or, or bring this wayward child back to me in a, in a right relationship. Or, or whatever your dark path may be. I, there's many we could go through. But yet, the encouragement in that is to wait, to hope, to look to God. Because He is our portion. So God is our portion in times of delight, in times of discontentment, in times of distress, and times of darkness. God is enough. We're going to close in with two stories of two different women who saw this up close and personal. The first one is a widow, and she's called the widow of Zarephath, belonging to Zidon, and this is in 1 Kings 17. If you want to turn back there to 1 Kings 17. first king 17 is right when elijah comes onto the scene elijah a great prophet remember he was on the on the mount of transfiguration there the disciples got to see him highly esteemed had an amazing public ministry many miracles but he had all deal with a lot of stubborn people who wanted to worship baal right <laughs> king ahab being one of them and so what had happened? The people had come into the land. They got their allotment of land. God said, drive out the Canaanites. They've done wicked. They've had their time to repent. They've had hundreds of years to turn and to repent. They haven't done it. It's time to get rid of them. This is all God ordained. What did the people do? They halfway obeyed. So what's still in the land? Canaanites. What comes with Canaanites? Baal worship. It's all right there. So what did King Ahab what was, and Jezebel <laughs> They're right there with the Canaanites in that sense, right there in the Baal worship. And so it says in verse 1, And Elijah the Tishbite, 1 Kings 17, who was the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years according to my word. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan." So what I want to do here is ask three questions as we go through this passage. The three questions are, where are they? And I'm asking of these people, where are they? Because that's really important, where they are physically. What do they have? And I'm asking substance-wise, physically, what do they have? And the third question that's very important because it comes up over and over and over in this passage is, what did God say? So where are they, what do they have, and what did God say? That's what we're going to ask each individual or each snapshot. And this first one is, where are they? Well, Elijah is in Jerusalem or in in Israel going up against the king of Israel who has is turned away from God. That's where he is. But then he's told to go to this brook in verse 3 Cherith that is before Jordan. Well, what did he just prophesy or denounce? He said you're not going to get any rain or any dew. What happens when you don't have any water feeding the river? It dries up. So he's already going to the east of Jordan here, which is a drier area. So he's going to a place where he's not going to have much at all. But God does provide, verse 4, and it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. Great. So he gets personalized uh, DoorDash delivery via smelly black birds, right? I don't know if you trust a raven delivering your bread, but that's what God provided. And so he gets a drink out of this stream that is slowly shrinking. And he has to wait for his daily mail delivery, flight service. And just trusting the Lord day by day that this is going to show up. So where is he? I don't know if it's in a very good spot. And what did he have? He had a little brook that was shrinking. And he had some ravens that God said we're going to bring him food. But that's what God said. And so noticing, notice he's following the word of God here. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. And it came to pass that for a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land, of course. And so, then again, we get in the second part of this story. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, again, what did God say? Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So where is he going? Where is he going? Where are they again? Well, this widow and now Elijah is told to go to Zarephath. Where is this? This is way in the north, so above Israel, and it's right above the allotment or the portion of land that God would have given to the tribe of Asher. But Asher, the tribe, got up there, and they did what pretty much all the rest of Israel did. They drove out some of the Canaanites, but then they stopped, right? So this area then north of Israel is taken back and it's no longer part of Israel now. And what it's very well known for is one thing, Baal worship, idolatry, following after that. So God in his wisdom and might had not just sent the drought on Israel themselves that had extended even to this widow who's outside of Israel and Elijah who's getting outside of there as well. So what did they have? Well, let's read through the rest of this, verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and he came to the gate of the city. And behold, the widow woman was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. Water's a hot commodity here right now. Okay, it's like toilet paper a year ago, except you need water to live. And she was going to fetch it and called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. So he's asking not just for water, which is scarce, but now bread, too. A drought brings famine. Verse 12, and she said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in the barrel, and a little oil in a cruise, and behold, I'm gathering two sticks, that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. So what did she have? Here she is in the middle of Baal-worshipping territory, middle of the famine. That's where they were. What did she have? A little bit of meal a little bit of oil two sticks not just one got two sticks here her son and the fifth thing she had was death on the doorstep right this is all we have left and then we're going to die but she says as thy the lord thy god liveth she saw that elijah was a man of god and she said this is what we're going to do so elijah verse 13 said unto her fear not Go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first and bring it unto me and after make for thee and thy son. Now that first, that first sounds selfish, right? Make it for the prophet of God first. He's just trying to get, but what was he doing here? What would it take for this woman who had a little meal, a little oil, two sticks, her son, death on the doorstep? What would it take for her to make this? it It take a little bit of faith, right? Okay, I'm going to obey. I'm going to trust what the word of God through the man of God, the prophet, has said, and I'm going to I'm going to do it. Verse 14: For thus saith the Lord God of Israel: Shall the crews of oil fail? Uh, the barrel of meal shall not waste. Neither shall the crews of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. So he gave her a promise before sending her back. He said your your meal and your oil is not going to run out. The Lord's going to be your portion. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah and she and he and her house did eat many days and the barrel of meal wasted not neither did the cruise of oil fail. What did God say? He kept according to the word of the Lord which he spake by Elijah. God kept his promise. He provided not just for the widow's needs but actually the needs of all of her household. And what did it take on her part? Faith. I'm going to trust the word of God. I'm going to trust what God said. I'm going to depend upon what little I know about the character of this man Elijah's God. That's what I'm going to do. Verse 17 And then it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick, and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. Where are they? They're in the house. What do they have? A really sick son. And she said unto Elijah, What have I done with thee, O oh, thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? Okay, God's taking care of this, this physical need, but now you're going to take my son. Not only that, you're going to bring to remembrance all the sin. Because she realized, okay, there's, there's judgment for sin, is, is her thinking here. And now you're going to take my own son? Remember, she was already ready to die and have her son die. That's, that was her expectation. And here, the man of God and God have given her a little hope, right? So her hope is up a little bit again, and now it looks like the bottom fell out, right? And here the son is on his deathbed. What does the prophet do, though? He doesn't argue. He just says, give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. And what does Elijah do? Same thing David did. He cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon this widow whom I sojourned by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. So here's a desperation cry again. Lord, you're my portion, you're my allotment. This is what you have allotted in our lives. He recognized that even this boy's death was an allotment from the Lord. But yet he cried out, and verse 22 says, "...and the, the Lord heard the voice of Elijah." Our God is different from any of the false gods. Remember, she's in the middle of Baal territory. They would cry out to Baal over and over and over again. Baal never heard. Remember, Elijah has that same experience on the mountaintop with all the false prophets. Cry out to your God. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's sleeping. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah. The Lord hears our cry. And here, in this instance, the Lord chose to answer this prayer in the positive. And the soul of the child, verse 22, came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. And here's how the woman sums it up. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. What did the widow come away with? She came away with saying, not, oh wow, I get oil and meal, or wow, my son is alive, although those were both excellent things to praise the Lord for. She's saying, no, the word of the Lord is true, and that's what I can depend upon and trust in. She came down, so it really came down to, again, this idea of faith. I'm going to trust in my Lord that he is my portion. So a few questions as we close. Are you satisfied with the Lord's provision? Are you content at taking the Lord at his word? Is God enough? Or in times of delight, is God your joy? Do you recognize that his portion, even in times of delight... Is from his gracious hand. Or about times of discontentment? Do you realize that even in those, I can depend and trust and rest in God? Where am I finding my contentment? Or distress, what is your first response to distress or stress in your life? Is it crying out to the Lord, you're my strength? Or who is your light when the dark thoughts swirl around? Is the Lord your portion even in dark times? In other words, this is really a journey, a progress. It's not just a one-time boom, okay, the Lord's my portion, great. No, this is a continual daily walk and communion with God. Just like David, just like Asaph, just like Jeremiah, just like the widow, of saying confidently, the Lord is my portion. I will trust and wait in him. We're going to close in Luke 10 with the the final illustration. Luke chapter 10, very familiar passage of two women. Luke 10, verse 38. And it's talking about our Lord. It's talking about our Lord Jesus Christ here. The two women are Mary and Martha. Martha. Luke chapter ten, verse thirty-eight, and it says, And now it came to pass as they went, that Jesus and his disciples, that he entered into a certain village, Luke 10, 38. And a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. So where are they? They're in Mar- Martha's house, right? What do they have? Well, they have a house, they have Jesus. And they have his word. And that's where Mary is concerned about. She's at his feet, listening, heeding, intently, trying to catch every word of Jesus. Verse 40, but Martha was consumed about much serving, and came to him said, "Lord, dost thou not care that my sister have, hath left me to serve alone, but her therefore that she should help me?" In other words, she's not doing her part. She's not taking care of her portion. She's not doing what she's supposed to do. What if, only if, if only Mary was helping, right? Verse 41, and Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. Could we not say that about our own hearts sometimes? (laughs) Phil, Phil, you're too troubled about many things. But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her what did mary choose she chose to listen not to her own dark thoughts swirling around (laughs) not the voices of people around her not the wicked people that seem to be prospering not the social media and tweets that are saying who knows what what was she listening to she was listening to the voice the words of jesus is god your portion